Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 20. Glory to you, O Lord. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hand and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with him. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Last week on Easter Sunday, I I actually overran the, uh, the ending of the assigned Gospel reading by two verses, the same two verses which serve now today as the beginning of the Gospel reading For this week, the reason I did that is because of the direction uh, the sermon ended up deciding to go, that direction being the direction that Easter wasn't something Jesus' first followers went out and found. It was rather something that came to them, something that sought out and found them, not in the churches where they were shouting hallelujahs, but rather in the socially distant places where they were grieving and in the sheltered-in-place places where they were afraid. Afraid, that is, in the case of the men in the story, whom we met as we ended the reading last week, and whom we therefore meet all over again as we begin the reading this week. Afraid, even though two of the ten of them, with their own eyes, had actually seen Easter Ground Zero, the empty tomb, and all of the ten of them, with their own ears, had heard or at the very least heard of the testimony of Mary Magdalene, telling them that the reason the tomb wasn't empty was empty wasn't because what she first thought, that being what they thought too, that being that somebody had taken and stolen his dead body from the tomb, but rather because he had risen from the dead. And she knew that he had risen because she had seen him risen with her own eyes and heard him speak to her with her own ears. And what he told her was to go tell them, which she did, which not a single one of them bought into. 
Have you ever wondered if you, if you buy into it? you ever wondered, doubted, maybe even had some wondering doubts right now as to whether or not this whole Easter thing is actually true? Well, it turns out you're in great company. Because while Thomas is the one whom history has chosen rather ignominiously to remember as the doubter, that's actually a very unfair distortion of the record, not because he didn't doubt, but because they all did. He's just the one, biblically speaking, who happened to do so when there was an open mic in the room. And so he's the one who got himself quoted on the record. But even just a kind of careful reading of the actual record shows there's not a single one of them, Jesus' first followers, the men anyway, who didn't doubt it too. There's not a single one of them who didn't think that Mary, obviously, needed to up her meds when she ran in, out of breath, speaking of and glowing of Jesus risen from the dead. But notice, notice beyond a doubt this To be someone who's had his doubts. To be someone who has times when she does wonder about it all. To be someone who has thought to themselves sometimes, is this whole Easter thing true? Is not to be someone whom the risen Christ in this story comes to judge, but rather someone whom the risen Christ in this story comes to find. To find in their doubts. And then to move them from their doubts and, you know what, perhaps even in a few cases to move them, doubts and all, to faith. Faith in the one whose love, whose saving grace, whose arms open so wide they are open wide enough even for a cross are also easily open way wide enough for doubters. Ten of whom, as our gospel reading begins, even though it is Easter Sunday, and even though they that morning had heard Mary preach the first ever and a great Easter sermon, aren't convinced. And unconvinced, the tie that binds is not their faith, but their fear. And so they stayed in their place, their frightened place, sheltered in place, behind locked doors and thick walls, which they prayed, or at least hoped to high heaven anyway, would keep what they feared out. What they then discovered, however, was that neither doors nor walls nor doubts nor fears could keep Easter out, as suddenly no knock on the door No door even unlocked or opened. Suddenly, they all saw with their own eyes the risen Christ there with them. Peace be with you, he said. Nothing, they answered. And then he showed them his hands. Where spikes had pierced him to a cross consigning him to death. And he showed them his side, where in the end, a spear from below his cross had pierced him up beneath the ribs and into his heart, confirming 
his death. And it was then. And by the way, this is another good time to remember that it's really hard to hear the fullness of the gospel's good news unless you can recognize great irony when you hear it. Because it was then, when they saw those wounds which had ravaged his body, birthing their fears, that they now rejoiced. They were glad, as in the presence of the very one who had been ravaged unto death with the very ravages of hell, but who was now back and alive again. It was now, now, finally now, their fears that died. As John says, it was gladness, it was joy, which now rose from the dead in their hearts. Peace be with you, he said to them again, and this time it took all the way way to the bottoms of their hearts. Because why? Because peace. Jesus wise is the word that describes hearts which have been found by the realization that in the arms of the kind of love he loves with, there's nothing. Nothing, not just in life, but even unto death. There's nothing, not a blessed thing or a damned thing either for that matter. There's ultimately nothing this side of a cross and an empty tomb ever, anywhere, anytime to be afraid of, which they knew when they saw his wounds. His wounds which, without comment, preached this Easter sermon which reached the bottoms of their hearts. Hate and death are losers. Love and life win. Then, he said, then as they rejoiced, he said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. What do you know? Another reminder that when it comes to the gifts Jesus gives, including sure as heaven, the hope, the peace, the joy that he as the Lord of Easter gives, his are never gifts to be hoarded. They are always gifts to be shared. Then, John said, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Ah, another reminder, which turns out to be John's version of what later in Luke's And Acts will be Pentecost's reminder and Pentecost's promise that being that when the risen Christ gives somebody something to do, he doesn't go on to say, well, good luck then. I hope that works out for you. But I got to go. Dad's waiting for me at home. No, when the risen Christ gives somebody something to do, what he says, what he promises, is that the power to do it, and to do it never alone, is ours, is yours, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit with you always. And then he said, and it's the last thing he said to them in this particular scene, where in this particular case, it surely does not sound like an afterthought. sounds to me like exactly the climax of his thoughts. As then he said to them, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain 
the sins of any, they are retained. <clears throat> Somebody said to me this week, why would he tell us to retain anybody's sins? Which I thought was a good question, <clears throat> which I'd never really given so much thought. So I did. And I gave the text another few readings and let time do what time does in mulling around. Soon, however, then to realize that in fact, he doesn't tell them to retain the sins of any so that sins are retained. He rather, it seems to me, tells them that if they retain the sins of any, that is to say, if they don't forgive, sins will be retained. Do you hear the difference? He's not prescribing that we not forgive. He's describing life and relationships with one another and with God and the need for forgiveness. Because why? Because without forgiveness, sins are retained. That is to say, without forgiveness, sin sticks to a person. One it sticks to is the sinner, where the adhesive it sticks with is generally some variation of a sticky compound of guilt and or regret and or denial and or rationalizing and or justifying and or fear of what I did will lead to. But to, of course, another place unforgiven sin sticks is to the one who was sinned against where the adhesive it sticks with is generally some variation of a sticky compound of anger that smolders and or self-righteousness that discovers sin only when it looks at others as opposed to when it looks in a mirror and or fear that if I forgive I will demonstrate weakness Weakness which in this world of sin will be taken advantage of and walked on. Add the two together, and the thing unforgiven sin sticks most to is relationships. Where the adhesive it sticks with is almost always some variation of the toxic compound of hearts hardened and Baxed turned. Jesus, risen from the dead, raises the disciples from their deathly fears, including the fear of death, then to send them into the world, surely to share the promise of eternal life with God, but surely too, here and now, to live life together in the spirit-led ways of the kingdom of God, both of which in the marvelous economy of God thrive in a marketplace whose stocks surge with every sin that is forgiven, including yours and including your neighbor's including some of your neighbors who need to know that by knowing it from you.
Peace be with you. Amen.